There's a story inside every smoke shop, with every cigar, and with every person. Come be a part of the cigar lifestyle at Boveda. This is Box Press. Welcome to another episode of Box Press. I'm your host, Rob Gagne. We are live at the PCA 2022 show, and I am sitting across from a legend in the industry. If you've smoked a Cameroon cigar, it has probably been touched, farmed, cured, and processed, and then shipped by this gentleman. You have a very unique look. Jeremiah Maratfell, thank you for being here on the Box Press Podcast. Rob, it's a pleasure. Your hat and scarf is just a striking look that I absolutely love. Is that something that you've always had or is it something that kind of grew on you as you got a little older? Nothing grows on you when you're a Marifel. You know, we're a 400-year-old family business, 11 generations, and um, innovation is a, is a very peculiar thing in our family because it takes a long time. Uh, the hat was worn by my father, by my grandfather, uh, the actual same Borsellino hat was worn by my father and my grandfather. I think Borsellino started its operations uh, in the 1800s, if I'm not mistaken. And um, it's, it's been a, a trademark of our family for many, many, many generations. So it's been going on from father to son, father to son. It has. It has. It's you know, when you also when you're living in, in Europe, in Belgium, with the rainy weather, you, you want to have a hat on your head to protect. It's utilitarian, <laughs> right? It's, it's absolutely yes. utilitarian. That's awesome. But because your family has been growing and using and sourcing Cameroon tobacco and basically been the pioneer, that's no small feat because in Africa, it's a whole different political climate. But your dad really went in there to help figure out how to grow Cameroon wrapper. What were some of the challenges that he had with communicating with the people in order to get the job done so that we could enjoy this beautiful tobacco you guys distribute? Yeah, Dad had no issues communicating with the people. On the contrary, that's the reason he was there. He fell in love with the people of Cameroon very early on in life. When he was uh, 18 years old, he moved to the eastern parts of Cameroon in the rainforest where he was one of the only peoples to be uh, included in include included in the culture of the pygmies, of the tribe of the pygmies, which were in the, the, the rainforest of the Kadai. And that was the beginning of everything for him. You know, once he was included in those tribes and he fell in love with the culture and the peoples, he dedicated his entire life later on into making his way and taking over the operations of the French monopoly that were controlling the, uh, the Cameroon wrapper in eastern, uh, eastern Cameroon, and finally buy them out in the in the early 90s and his dream became reality he was able to build the villages and the schooling systems and the hospitals and all the other infrastructure to help the, the peoples that have been his brothers his sisters his uncles his aunts for the better part of the majority of his life and that's what Cameroon meant to us as a family Cameroon was our family. It was our family because it was my father's family and later on became ours. An extraordinary culture, an extraordinary peoples, and an extraordinary country. Does it have challenges? Of course it has challenges. 
very, very different than what you would see here in uh, the United States or in, the, in any of the civilized world, actually. You know, who would think that uh, the number one killer would be a mosquito? Who would think that you would have gorillas, which are both frightening and dangerous to human beings? Who would think that elephants could cause mayhem walking through the village and destroying everything? Who would think that you would have black panthers that need to be caught or else? Who would think that drinkable water is a challenge until we built the wells that we built and the filtration systems and that without them, thousands and thousands and tens of thousands of people fall seriously ill and die. The environment can be very, very different and very dangerous, but it's all made up for by the beauty of the people, by the beauty of the culture, and by this unique leaf, which my family called the sacred leaf, which is not probably, which is certainly the most challenging leaf of premium tobacco to be grown anywhere on the planet. Right. That's, that's what I mean. That was just a, that's a very difficult area to grow tobacco. That challenge there. So, I mean, just to Well, take you have no out. running water, no irrigation, no electricity. Right. No tractors. Things are done with your two hands like they were done 100 years ago or 500 years ago. Things are done the old way, the traditional way. And I don't know what it is with our family, but we like the Uber tradition. But a good challenge is rewarding when it's overcame. Well, it's, it's very rewarding, but there's a lot of drama involved. My father lost his life at a very young age. He passed away due to an expropriation in uh, Central Africa and in the Cameroonese region of Eastern, Eastern Cameroon, Western Central Africa. We lost everything so many times. And um, this is a business model which we've chosen to insert so much passion and so much of who we are. There's not many people, I believe, that would be so adventurous to follow their passions to a limit which costs you your life. On the other hand, you're right. I agree with you, Rob. When you're able to bring out of nature at a very hefty price something which is so noble and so special, it brings a lot of meaning into the choices you've made as a human being, both personally and professionally. Yeah. Man. Yeah. I just can't, you know, express in words the gratitude that I have for your family to take on that responsibility or to even accept that challenge? When we burn the leaf, put a lighter to it, a flame to it, and those aromas come out, the white ash, the goosebumps, revealing the magnesium, the sugars, the coffees, the chocolates, that distinct Smeriful Cameroon's smells and tastes, and those fumes are coming up and going towards the heavens. The smile it puts on our faces, on our hearts, they enlighten a lot. And um, 
I would have it no other way. Well said. Well said. When you decided to carry on in your dad's kind of legacy, right? Is that a good way to say that? The generational legacy that is your last name? Was that a choice had you not made it that your dad would have been okay with? Had you gone off and done your own thing, would he have been okay with that? Or was it always something that you knew you were going to do and that was your passion? It's probably the hardest question anybody's asked me in my life, Rob. When you're born in a family with hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years of tradition, To be perfectly honest, I think it's a mixture of everything. There's a mixture of a mis uh, mixture of responsibility. There's a mixture of obligation. There's a mixture of passion. There's a mixture of. It's not explainable. It's something which you're born into, and which is infused into you since the moment you're born. My earliest memories. I must have been maybe one, two, three years old. I don't know. I was a very, very small baby, a child. I was sitting on my father's lap whilst he's smoking a cigar or my grandfather. Cigars have been present in my, in my lifetime since my earliest ages, since my earliest days. It's like a part of you. It's like a leg. It's like an arm. It truly is. So the question is a difficult one because when something's part of you forever, the only thing that is spoken about in the household is tobacco and cigars. The only thing that's spoken about socially is tobacco and cigars. The best friends of my father were Carlito Fuente and Robbie Levin and our vacations were spent with tobacco people. I wasn't 15 or 20 years old at that time. I was a newborn baby at that time. So with, with all the goodwill in the world, Rob, I really wouldn't know how to answer that question. Well said, though. I mean, that was there ever, though, a time that maybe you thought you wouldn't be able to fill his shoes or step into that role? I know I could never fill my father's shoes. True. And I know I'll never be able to fill my father's shoes. But I sure as hell try every single day of my life to make him proud. He's no longer with us physically, unfortunately. But even now, today, I wake up every single morning of my life and try to make my daddy proud. I think that's, uh, that's what many people do. and There's no difference to me. Was there a time that your dad actually expressed to you how proud he was of you that made you just kind of like, just melt and kind of think oh my god I couldn't feel much better than I do right now first time anybody's asked me that question and therefore it's going to be the first time I ever answer it there was once a few days before he passed away a few days before he passed away he told me he loved me for the first time and he told me that he was proud of me for the first time and that in itself for me was very unusual and very shocking and um, he was in the Dominican Republic he went to see, it was his birthday. We spent his birthday with um, 
Daniel Nunez in the morning, and then we had lunch with Guillermo Leon, and then afterwards we have we had dinner with Carlito Fuente, and it was almost like he was saying his goodbyes. It was a very very unusual moment. The circumstances were very unusual. Yes, Rob. He did once. Thank you for sharing that. It's just my father passed when I was six. So that that yearning for that male role model in your life, I always feel like I'm kind of living in the legacy and the stories of. So I too have to always think, am I doing what my dad would be proud of me doing. And there's no doubt that I am because it just, I don't know, it's a feeling. But you still ask the question as a human, as a man, you still ask the same question. So we're very, very smart intellectual beings, but we also fall into the trap of those psychological hurdles that we have to jump over. Do you have children now yourself I do yes do I have you have a son I have two sons yes two sons and a daughter yes are they going to be uh, taking over into the business as well just like you did I have very little doubt in my mind and I truly believe that they will but I express to them every day that they can choose whatever it is they want to choose and whatever they feel that they're that's special to them should be pursued at the highest level whatever it is right you know they should do what what they want to do but obviously there's a secret place in my heart that is reassuring me every moment that <laughs> that they they fell into the magic potion <laughs> How old are they? They're very young. I started late, so I have a 10-year-old, a 7, and a 6-year-old. As you're shaping your children, because I try to use the word shaping, because anytime that we tell our children what to do, I just recently had a baby boy Mazal tov. three weeks ago. Congratulations. Thank you. This so is I'm, big news. Yeah. Where's, where's the scotch so we can celebrate? And I have a daughter who's a year and a half old. Her name's <laughs> Nora, and I just had Finley three weeks ago. So I'm building my family too, just along with you here, Jeremiah. And my wife is teaching me the whole positive nurturing, not the negative. Because being told what to do is oftentimes just the opposite of what we want. As a father, how do you navigate the desire to tell your kids what to do out of love and sacrifice to not see them get hurt. What's the Jeremiah rule of thumb to follow so you don't fall into the psychological trap and keep your kids always making their own decisions with your helpful guidance? Rob, I have no idea how to answer that question. <laughs> you can sit here and talk to me about tobacco or cigars until the moon falls down but on educating the children, 
I have no idea. I think that I'm trying to do the best I can, but the reality is, I really don't know. I can tell you one thing though. They will have been infused with a lot of passion. Tradition through their coming out of their ears <laughs> and the notions of value and respect. I have no patience, no tolerance, no nothing for a lack of values and a lack of respect. Yeah. And if it's the thing that I managed to infuse or to mold, like the words you didn't use, but to mold into them, that's what I will mold into them. And hopefully one day those values and those traditions and the the love of those values the respect of those values will be what makes them stronger human beings and valuable human beings the rest i don't know <laughs> yeah i'm so glad you said that because i'm trying to pick up tidbits from other fathers <laughs> to figure out how to do this but i'm right there with you thinking i don't know what i'm doing <laughs> and i'm hoping it's not creating a problem for my child because all I want for them is the best possible life. <laughs> you didn't know you were going to come on the show and talk all about life and not cigars. That's that's perfectly fine and okay. it's quite refreshing to be honest with you. Good. I appreciate it. Um, as you are obviously navigating this life with raising children, you navigate the business world, which many of our listeners have to do both. It's business, you have to work, you have to provide, you have to do something productive for your life. And then you also have to figure out how to carve out some time to make some memories with family. What is your kind of hard and fast rule? Are you a type of guy that's, when I'm done with work, I'm done with work and I'm into the family? Or is it really easy for you to blend both and get a lot out of both and be very successful in both areas? I'm in a very peculiar situation because my work is my family. And so I'm engaged with my, let's call it work. You call it work. I don't see it as work, but because this is my life. Right. And this, my entire life is built sure. around your career, what your, I'm doing. Yes. Your legacy. So for me, six days a week, 24 hours a day, this is what I do. This is what I love doing. I try to include my children as much as I can into this world. I try to show them and I try to share with them. Um, and just like I was brought up with a lot of respect towards understanding that this is how it is. Growing up in a family such as ours, that's one of the sacrifices that, if you want to call it a sacrifice, that you will make as a child is that the environment, the daddy that you have is a daddy that's also married and also a father to a, a very strong tradition which he's maintaining and a passion which he has which is just as important to him than everything else because it's part of it. It's part of the picture. I always laugh. I say I have four children and I do have four children. I have two sons. I have a daughter. And then I have my business. Yeah. And uh, what, what we call the business now, what, what you're calling a business, is, uh, is something which needs time. It needs nurturing. 
It needs education. Just like a kid. Just like a child. There are so many people who depend on it. In Africa, there's close to 40,000 people that depend on the organization which we are running there. The impact is on hundreds of thousands of people. Right. Um, when we run the, the, the clinics or the schools or the, the, f the freshwater projects or whatever it is we're doing, we're changing the lives of hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people. We're saving the lives of thousands and tens of thousands of people. So if you don't see it as part of your children and part of what you do, you're probably not going to have a very happy life and you're probably not going to excel in what you're doing at a very high level. My children respect this and they understand this and they're also part of this and this is why I think that it's not easy to grow up in a family, business, environment where things have been done hundreds of years in a certain way uh, but I believe that it's, a, it's, an, it's an education with very uh, severe but very strong values and uh, hopefully they'll accept to, uh, to infuse those in, in, into their daily lives later on and make a difference Right. to people around them later on because at the end of the day we're here for a finite amount of time whether that's days, hours, weeks, years whatever it may be um, and there's one thing you want to make sure you do and that's a difference make a difference make a difference in a positive way we have that power to help so many people right. and it's such a waste and such a pity not to do it and some people think huh, but wait a second you know, what, what can I do? Ladies and gentlemen, don't think you need to change the world in a massive way. Take a dollar out of your pocket. Take one minute out of your time. That's all it takes to get the domino effect going and making an enormous difference around you. I was doing it this morning because I was struggling to try to find some equipment that we needed. And I was asking the security guards, the the, the hotel staff for help and I made sure I went out on my way to just thank them for their time because guess what in hospitality they probably get a demand here and there but if somebody can actually thank them for the time that technically they're paid to do but it's just like you said it's a respect you engaged with my request you helped talk through it you didn't provide a solution, but you just helped me get to the next level. I owe it to you to at least thank you for that time. And so I always tried to make a conscious choice of looking them in the eye and saying, thank you for the time. If it was on the phone, really just saying, thank you very much for working through this. I think you're absolutely right. The domino effect happens right there. That's the start. How can you make the difference? It's how we treat each other. And that's going to make the domino effect. And it's going to ripple out. And I hope to God. And it doesn't start with me because guess what? I got it last night when I was sitting around, hanging out with my buddies, loving up on me, talking, whatever. So the domino effect just keeps going. And I want to make sure I'm the piece that tips over and knocks another domino into another good domino. I don't want to fall out of the domino and stop the train from the good vibes happening throughout the world. Rob, one of the, one of the I think, things that keeps people like us engaged, and in this uh, industry, one of the most surprising things is the engagement that factory owners or tobacco men have, and it's not surprising. 
it's not surprising because the way you share emotion in the cigar industry is so powerful and the effect you have on people around you is so wonderful that I think it explains a lot about the engagement that, uh, uh, that we have and the, uh, the reward that we have. And at the end of the day, there might be a little bit of a little bit of an egoistical side to all of this. Whereas I'm searching for pleasure f by making people happy. And that happiness makes us... It's, it's immensely rewarding. Right. There's no better... Like, when I was a funeral director, there was no amount of money or amount of anything that could get me the gratification that I got from helping somebody through a difficult time. A, a, a position that they couldn't navigate, I was able to come in and help them. So when you talk about being able to deliver some happiness and enjoyment, relaxation, a break, whatever you want to call a cigar gives you or the experience gives you, you're delivering that to thousands, to hundreds of thousands of people all over the world. What if we just take a step back and just look at that? What a cool job. And you don't call it a job, but what a cool life then that we get to live. Yes. Jeremiah, I want to thank you for just coming in, sitting down with me and talking. I know you have cigars that you're launching. It's a big project. It's something that isn't light. In fact, the band, you know, there's the band people have talked about like bikini bands or cutouts and you you took it to the next level there's nothing like that band it's like a stained glass window and really what the art is is the rapper the rapper that you and your family have poured your time and energy and blood sweat and tears for centuries into and I think there's no other better way for you to have a rapper on your cigar than the way you did it. Was that a conscious choice or am I just hopping on the uh, philo philosophical bandwagon here that I'm vibing on? Yeah, this, the Merful Cigar Project comes from, a, it's been 20 years I've been developing this project, 19 years to be exact. And uh, the idea behind it is to say, listen, I, I owe something to, to my father and to my grandfather and to my great-grandfather and so on and so forth. And, and I owe to bring something to the table, something innovative, something different. But it's very, very hard to do so when every generation of your family has shifted the course of the industry, literally shifted the course of the industry. And for me, it was a, a lifelong dream to try to create a new segment in our industry. Um, but creating a new segment is not something you can take very lightly. Um, you need to actually bring value, you need to bring meaning, and you need to justify creating a new segment. It's one thing creating a, a, a product which has a different type of packaging or a different kind of marketing or a different kind of... And that's, that's one thing. It's another thing creating a product which is actually a different product. Um, you can drive around in a, in a Mercedes, in a BMW, they're different products, they're packaged differently, but they're in relatively similar segments. Right. 
But you can also walk into the Pagani factory or to the Bugatti factory. And yes, it's a car. It has four wheels. It will take you from A to B. But in essence, it's a different niche. It's a different, it's a, it's a, it's a different industry, so to speak. And what these people have done, and the European luxury world was very, very strong at doing this. Chanel was very strong at doing this. Richard Mille and Patek Philippe were very strong at doing this. Um, a lot of these, you know, what I call uber luxury brands were very strong at doing this, was taking a product and deconstructing it. Deconstructing every single element of the product. And I use Pagani, it's a very easy example to understand because you take a car and you basically break it down into pieces and either you reinvent the pieces or you bring them to a level which has never been touched before in the industry and then you reassemble this. And this is what was missing in my opinion in the cigar industry was the uber luxury segment of let's bring things to a level which has just never been achieved before in a complete deconstruction of the product. It was not easy. 20 years is a long time to develop yeah. something like this. Uh, the band is definitely one of the pieces. Uh, we have a patent on that band, on the, on, on the way that it's been done and the reasons why it's been done. Uh, we had to bring it into the aerospatial industry to get it to that level. So this is not something that is possible to do in a band factory um, because of many reasons. Uh, what inspired me was my heritage, the lace of Belgium. Belgium is very known for its lace, the Bruges lace. Um, and what is it? It's the, the uh, capacity to see the beauty of what's behind it. And so you were spot on when you were speaking about Thank the wrapper. Um, how do we actually take something and make lace out of it? Like the lace that a woman would wear. On one hand, you can dream of what, about what's behind it. It's very romantic. It's incredible. It's showing just a little bit, but at the same time, it, it has a nobility to it. It has an elegance to it. Um, I worked very, very closely with a partner, John van Tiltelen, who's a bandmaker in the Netherlands, a very specialized, very, very, very high-end, very specialized. And he was definitely part of the R&D and the innovation in this and you know, enabled us to bring this to the next level. Um, the boxes. Boxes, I went crazy with. You know, how do you make something which actually looks good, but at the same time is different? I didn't want to use paper. I didn't want to use cardboard, recycled cardboard. I didn't want to go in that direction because it's definitely not uber luxury. So I had to stick with wood, but I didn't want to touch wood. Wood is a disaster. It deforests the planet. It's, it's wrong. And if we could do something to change that, how do we do it? So we started experimenting. Finally, we found a very, very precious wood out of Japan, which is kind of like a bamboo, which is used for their you know, $5,000 knives and, and, and the food industry because it doesn't, it's also very interesting. It doesn't play with the taste or the smell in any which way, shape or form. And we created, a, I believe, the first sustainable box in the world, cigar box in the world, which has no impact on forest or deforestation in any, any which way, shape or form. Um, and this, this just goes on with everything. The ribbon, and I'll just, I won't go into all of the details, but there's not a single element in the entire product which has not been brought either by reinvention or bringing to the next level, to the uber luxury level. And we were very proud when we could bring out a product where we could say, all right, Marifel has now created a new segment in the cigar industry. Yeah, that's a big ask, <laughs> but you did it really well. And well, I don't know if we did it really well. 
if we would have done it in a year or two, we would have done it really well. No. We took 20 years to do it. So no. let's say that we managed to figure it out after I a totally generation. I disagree. <laughs> because anytime something's new and really getting rebuilt from the ground up, if you did it in a year or two, it would have already been done before. So the fact that it took you 20 years, actually to me, seems like a short timeline. Because it probably should have been something that didn't get finished, and on your deathbed, you would have had to pass it to your sons. Uh, in a way, that's what happened. But through the previous generation, my father had been putting away tobaccos his entire life. And when he passed away 19 years ago, which is the moment I started working on this project, we continued putting away tobaccos. One of the elements I did not speak about, and I won't go into detail, is that this product uses the oldest tobaccos on the planet as a production cigar. These are not batch cigars. These are not one-off, 100-box cigars. This is a production which is using tobaccos at a standard which typically wouldn't be able to be done by any, anybody in the world simply because of the nature of the, of the tobaccos that are being used. Um, so again, I think Dad actually, without knowing it, planted the seed in terms of, I don't think I know, in terms of what was going to happen in the next generation. And uh, it took 20 years, which is considered a generation, but it finally came to fruition and to maturity. And um, I'm going to tell you a little secret that nobody knows. And this is going to be an exclusive for you yes. today. My ears perk up. We manufactured in the box, and nobody knows this. You can see it. But it's not easy to see and nobody knows it. We haven't ever said this. We manufactured in the box a segment to be able to maintain humidity control for the cigars. Why did we do it in a hidden way? This product is not about show-offing anything. It's not about advertising anything. It's about getting the product to the, to the level of the uber luxury. And so on the bottom of the box, and this has never been released yet, it's never been showed to the world yet, on the bottom of the box, or the 25 box count, we actually engineered a slit. There's a, there's a, a fake bottom onto the box. And inside that slit, there is a Bovida humidification system, which is maintaining all of the uh, uh, moisture levels, all of the what, yeah. what you're specialized in doing. Right. Um, to be able to keep these cigars at, 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 a, at the level which they need to be, I mean, you're talking about very, very, very expensive products. You're talking about extremely difficult cigars to find. I mean, most people in the world will never actually see a box of these cigars. There will only be uh, in a few of the, the finest retailers on the planet, in, in Monte Carlo and in Hong Kong and in London and in Paris and in New York. It's going to be a very, 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 very small production every year. Consistent production, but small production. So we need to maintain the product at a perfect, absolutely perfect level. And like I said, either we reinvent things or we push them to a level which, which is what is available in the world. And actually, we actually used your system to be able to do that for the, uh, for the hydrometry. Wow. 
I'm glad we could provide that. And I appreciate that you could provide that because without it, we would have had a problem. We would have a challenge getting the product to the level we needed it to the retailers and to the consumers. Wow. Yeah, no wonder why when typically on this show we smoke while we talk, but now I'm really glad we're not. Because your cigar is way, it's, I don't know how to say it, but you know what I'm saying, right? Your cigar is not a cigar you just sit down, no. light up, and have a conversation. No, no it, it could be. It could be. And it will setting, be. In this setting? But you want to do it in an environment. Right. And in a moment where 100% of your senses and the experience goes into the product. Exactly. It would be a waste and it would be a pity not to do it. Disrespectful. Honestly, yes. Yeah. Because at that level of product, at that level of product, with that level of precision and that level of nuance, you don't want to be sitting in an environment where there's a huge amount of cigar smoke around you which, which is playing with your taste buds, yeah. with what's going on in, on an olfactive level. Um, you want to be concentrating on what you're doing and enjoying the moment with someone or without someone, right. but in a very specific way. Absolutely. After I didn't even know any of this stuff, Jeremiah. I didn't know any of this. You see, the Marifo family is, is not very good at marketing or advertising right. or, or anything of the sort. We've always been very much behind the scenes for the last 400 years of our right. involvement in the, cigar, in, the, in the tobacco and the cigar business. You know, most people don't know that in 1876, we opened up a cigar factory in, in, in southern Germany where we were manufacturing Marifol cigars. So this is not the first time a Marifol cigar comes out. Uh, this is actually a tribute to the factory of 1876. Uh, 1876? Where, where, yes. Where my great-great-grandfather, Meir Marifol, uh, is, uh, established the first cigar factory of the family. The tobacco we were doing a few, a few uh, two, three hundred years before that, but uh, the cigar factory was was only in 1876. Oh, only, yeah, yeah, yes. yeah. Just a short, short time ago, it was, it was, it was an actual thing. I haven't had a ton of opportunity to travel to Europe. But I have gone to Spain, and when I was there, just to be able to look at buildings that, like, in America, we just don't have a frame of reference for how old that is. And as I sit across from you, I get the sense that I'm looking at an old historic building <laughs> that I just have to take a moment and stop and look at and not pass by without looking at it on the street. And if I get the opportunity to pop inside of it, which I think we kind of did with this conversation, that it would be a, a huge treat and blessing to my experience as a human through this life. So I don't think there's any better way to close out this conversation than that. And I can't thank you enough for being patient with me and also just having grace and gratitude with sitting down with me and talking about some difficult things and peeling back the onion and letting me step inside the building that is far beyond just what my frame of reference is. Rob, 
it was a true honor and a true pleasure to sit with you today. And I want to thank you for your time and the opportunity. The discussion was special. And um, I always say this, I say this on my shows, I say this to everybody, and it's coming from the heart. If you don't do it with passion, don't do it at all, Rob. Absolutely. I agree. That's another episode of Box Press. This was something super unique, and I hope you enjoyed it. I can't say much more than that. Thank you.